We are looking at here in John, this time, verses 14 down through 18. And I have entitled the message, Receiving the Fullness of His Grace. And we are in this message coming to the end of the introductory section of John. John runs his introduction from verse 1 all the way down to verse 18 and touches on many themes that he's going to develop throughout the book. And we come to the end of that introductory section today. We talked about verse 14 in some detail in another one of our messages when we were in the first few verses. We dropped down and pulled it up because it went so well with the first couple of verses. And yet I want to touch on it again as we move through this section because there's a few more things that I think need to be brought out in verse 14. And plus it ties in so nicely with verse 15. But let's read over the text and then we'll begin to talk about it. In verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. One of the things I like about studying John's writing is that he is so different from the Apostle Paul. And I have spent so much time in the study of Paul's epistles that I become used to the way that Paul thinks, the way he reasons, the way he writes. And coming to John is, is totally different from me. And it has a way of stirring my mind in a different direction and causing me to stretch in my thinking to embrace the way he thinks. And that is one of the benefits that I have experienced already in studying this great book. But here in these verses, I want to draw out for our thinking three main thoughts, if I could. We have here in verse 14 what we could describe as the humanity of God. And then moving on from there, we have what we could describe as the grace of God. And then we have in the very last verse here, verse 18, the declaration of God. So just three things, the humanity of God, the grace of God, and the declaration of God. Let's talk about the humanity of God as we begin here in verse 14. And the first thing that we see here is basically the deity of the man, Jesus Christ. In verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we are face to face with one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. Truly the incarnation is something that is a great, great mystery. And I don't think we can study it enough or even understand it enough because so many heresies, false doctrines in the church have been built around the issue of the incarnation. So every time we come to it in the Bible, I think it is beneficial to us to see what further thing we might understand or what old thing we might be remembered of and be perfectly clear if we can be on so many of the issues that are presented to us in the Word. One thing that is very true about the incarnation is that God voluntarily joined us in our human experience. That to me is such a, a wonderful thing to contemplate. Having studied many of the religions of the world before I became a Christian and having seen so many 
impersonal representations of God. It is so wonderful to me to come to the Bible and to read what we have in verse 14 and realize that God voluntarily came down and joined us here on this planet in the human experience. And that beyond that, He lived an ordinary human life. Think of that. God was born here on this planet and lived an ordinary human life. We know Him as the man Jesus Christ. But like ourselves, if you think about it, how ordinary Jesus was. He was born of a woman, as you and I were. He grew up from infancy to boyhood. He went from boyhood to manhood. The Bible said, and as he did go through that process, that he grew in favor and stature with God and man. There was this growing process that was going on inside of him as he grew also in wisdom. So somehow in this great mystery, as we look just at his humanity, we see that he grew as ordinary men grow. Grew in wisdom, grew in favor and stature with God and man. We see him in the Bible hungering. We see him thirsting. We see him sitting on the well because he's tired. We see him drinking and we see him sleeping. We see him feeling pain. Of all the wonders, we see him sitting and weeping. As he looks over the city of Jerusalem in one place, he weeps in a number of places at the tomb of Lazarus. Here is a man among men who has a, a best friend named Lazarus. And here he is, weeping at the tomb of his best friend, feeling what a normal man would feel. We see him rejoicing. We see him marveling. In one place it says he marveled at their unbelief. We see him move to anger. We see him move to compassion. When the procession came by with the widow at Nain, he was moved with compassion. He felt what a normal man would feel in those circumstances. Having become flesh and having taken a body, as he grew, he prayed. He read the scriptures like men of God do. He suffered through temptation like men of God do. He submitted his will as a man to the will of the Father like men of God do. Finally, in the same body, he suffered, he bled, he died, he was buried, and then miraculously, and yet still as a man, he rose again from the dead and went back into heaven. And so he lived in his body as an ordinary man, being God all the while. Now, before we go on to another thought here, I do want to mention this. I think it's noteworthy that as an ordinary man filled with the Spirit, he defeated Satan in the wilderness with the Word of God. That to me is so encouraging as you examine the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as you look at him from the angle of just his humanity, though he was deity, as you look at the angle of his humanity, there's so many things to encourage you. And one of the reasons we have him portrayed before us on the pages of the Gospels is just for that, to encourage you. You look at the Bible and you see Jesus in his encounters with the devil. And what you see is a man beating the devil, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, defeating the devil as a man. Yes, there is a sense on the cross where as God, he conquers and destroys the works of the devil, but yet all the while still a man. You see him in the wilderness when the enemy comes to him in his weakest hour, as he generally loves to do. He lurks around and watches you until you hit your weakest point. Then he rushes in with some of his sharpest tactics. And he tempts Jesus in his weakest hour, having fasted for 40 days, having gone as long as a human body in great fabulous shape could go before true starvation would set in. 
He comes to him as starvation begins to set in. He tempts him with the bread. He tempts him in the different ways and the pinnacle of the temple, the mountain, and all of that, the kingdoms of the world. And in every case, he responds simply by quoting Scripture. Why? And why is that recorded? Surely there were other times in the Bible where he was tempted by the devil. Why that? Why is that recorded in absolute detail? To tell us that he lived his life as an ordinary man, but a man of God, a man filled with the Spirit of God, a man who defeated the devil as a man filled with the Spirit and defeated him, not with these wondrous magical powers that only deity would have, but with the Word of God which he has given unto us, leaving us a testimony that we can do it too. He lived his life as an ordinary man, and he lived it in victory. And having said all of that then, we need to say this, that he never for a moment ceased to be God. He lived his life as an ordinary man, but never for a moment in his life ceased to be God. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. And by the way, J.C. Ryle, if you haven't read any of his writings, I highly recommend him to you. He is as deep as it gets, and yet he is at the same time understandable. J.C. Ryle says this, The Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, of her substance, so that the two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhood and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man. So all of that is to say that once he became a man, there was the perfect nature of God and the perfect nature of man as he was conceived and became a man in the womb of Mary. Never from that moment of conception did one nature swallow up and eclipse the other. So that from the time of his conception until this very moment, as he sits on the right hand of God in the heavens, he remains 100% man and 100% God. Never has he ceased to be God, not even for one moment. So the divinity of Christ was never for a moment laid aside. And yet, think of it. Think of how you've read your Bibles and how you've read in the Gospels. That is not to say that his divine side was always being manifested. That is not to say that every day of his life he was constantly manifesting his divine nature because he didn't. It is a mystery to us why sometimes he manifests his divine nature and sometimes he does not. Why does he go up on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John and sort of pull back the veil of his flesh and reveal this glory that's blinding? And other days, you just see him resting by the well, walking down the road, wearied, over here weeping. Why? We don't know. We cannot explain these things. And as we look at all of these things, I want you to realize this. It is vital, absolutely vital, that we are clear on these things. And let me tell you why. Because here we have the basic truth of the Christian gospel. If you take the deity out of the man Jesus Christ, you have once and for all ruined the Christian gospel. You've turned it into something else. Listen to the words of John MacArthur on this from his commentary on Matthew. 
He says, It is surely no accident, therefore, that the beginning of Matthew's gospel at the outset of the New Testament is devoted to establishing both the regal humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus being both human and divine, there is no gospel. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. The whole superstructure of Christian theology is built on it. The essence and the power of the gospel is that God became man and that by being both holy man and holy God, he was able to reconcile men to God. Jesus' virgin birth, his substitutionary atoning death, his resurrection, ascension, and return are all integral aspects of his deity and they all stand or fall together. He goes on to say, if any of those teachings all clearly taught in the New Testament is rejected, the entire gospel must be rejected. None makes sense or could have any significance or power apart from the others. If those things were not true, even Jesus' moral teachings would be suspect because if he misrepresented who he was by preposterously claiming equality with God, then how could anything else he said be trusted? Or if the gospel writers misrepresented who he was, why should we trust their word about anything else he said or did? And that is why we must understand the humanity and the deity of the man Jesus Christ, because the entire Christian faith rests upon it. So we see the deity of Jesus Christ. But also here we see in verse 15, the witness of the man John. If you go back to look at John chapter 1 verse 15. And just basically two things. John is using the witness here of John the Baptist just to underscore what he's been teaching us so far. And so in verse 15 he says, John bore witness of him. That's John the Baptist. Anytime you have John writing, who's writing the gospel, anytime he's in the picture, he doesn't use his own name. He goes by some other alias the disciple whom Jesus loved, or some other thing. So we know here this is John the Baptist. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now what does he mean by this? Well, this is a statement of the preeminence of Jesus Christ as John the Baptist perceived it. John the Baptist says here, He who comes after me is preferred before me. What does he mean by that? Well, if you read your Bible, you understand that Jesus was born how long after John the Baptist? Does anybody know? Six months. Very good. So six months after John the Baptist was born, Jesus was born. So in the most real sense, as you look at the pathway of Jesus' life, he gets onto the path after John. In his birth, in his public ministry, he's behind John. So John says, he who comes after me is preferred before me. And he's simply saying this, he ranks above me in power and glory. He's everything and I'm nothing. That's what he says. In other words, he said in another place, may I decrease and may he increase. You see, he, there's a reason that John was the forerunner of Christ. He understood who Christ was. So much so that not only did he understand his preeminence, but he understood his pre-existence. And this is why John writing his gospel calls upon John the Baptist now as a witness to underscore his teaching of the Incarnation, which was in the verse before, because he also declares his pre-existence. Look at the verse again. John, in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, 
This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. Why? Because he was before me. Literally a word about his pre-existence. In other words, John is underscoring the incarnation of Jesus. He is saying, you know, I came into time by being born and coming into existence. Jesus Christ relates to time as one coming out of eternity, having already existed into time. He is above me because he was before me. He existed in time before me. All of that is to underscore simply verse 14 and the truth about his deity in the incarnation. So we have been looking at in these verses the humanity of God. Now moving to verses 16 and 17, John talks to us about the grace of God. And I'll tell you, I never get tired of talking about or thinking about the grace of God. One of the things he tells us here is that there is a never-ending supply of grace in Christ. A never-ending supply of grace in Christ. Look at verse 16. It says, And of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. That is to say, for you and for me, there is a never-ending supply of grace in Jesus Christ. One of the things that we see here as we read this verse is that we all receive this grace, all of us. Now I'm talking about those of us who have been born again. We all receive this grace. And of His fullness we have all received. Now there's a number of reasons why we all receive. One is that we have all received because none of us could earn it. So all of us have received it because not one of us could earn it. And there's so much we could say about that. We have in many studies talked about that. Another reason we have all received is because we have all received it because God was so aggressive to give it to us. And I love that thought. Do you realize that you being a sinful person, God being a holy God, and may I say God being infinitely far more holy than you have ever conceived Him to be, even in your most spiritual moments, that God being an infinitely holy God and you being a dreadfully sinful creature as I myself am, to realize then that God not only makes His grace available, but that He's aggressive with it, to me that is one of the most wonderful realities of the Christian life. God is aggressive with His grace to give it in finding you to give you salvation and then after you become a Christian to lavish it upon you to meet all of your needs. I love the story that H.A. Ironside tells about a new convert who gave his testimony in church. It's one of my favorite stories about grace. With a smile on his face and joy in his heart, the man related how he had been delivered from a life of dreadful sin. He gave the Lord all the glory, saying nothing about any of his own merits or what he had done to deserve the blessings of the redemption. The person in charge, who was very legalistic, didn't fully appreciate the reality of salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from human works. So he responded to the man, the young man's comments, by saying, You seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you. But didn't you do your part before God did his? The new Christian jumped back up to his feet and he said, Oh yes, I did. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. He said, but God took out after me and he ran me down. That was his part. You know, I love that. 
And I believe that that is a story that every redeemed sinner can understand. If you are truly a child of God today, you understand that story. You're already thinking back in your mind as how he ran you down, of how you ran from him. And yet he was so aggressive with his grace. He kept sending people to you, messengers, sending them to you, telling you again of the gospel, and you would make your excuses and turn away. And it would seem as you would turn away, he'd send someone from another angle. You moved from one job, and you thought you were away from those Jesus people. And the next thing you knew, there's more of them at the next job than there was at the previous job. And God had His way of running you down. He is so aggressive with His grace. Now think of this. If He's that aggressive with His grace to save us, how much more is He aggressive with His grace to bless us and fill us once we become His children? So we read here in our text that we all receive this grace. Paul said in Romans 5.20, he said, But where sin abounded, grace abounded more and more. God is aggressive, and that is why we all receive. Another thought here is that we all receive out of His fullness. We're going a little deeper now into His grace. We all receive, and yet further, we all receive out of His fullness. You know, God's got a lot of us to worry about. He's a father with many children in his family. And I've often wondered, you know, with so many children in the family and such a need for grace because the kids are so sinful, I wonder if God might run out of grace. And he's lavished so much on me, perhaps I've used up an entire lifetime's worth in only a few years. And I might have used up my portion. I need to know. You need to know as a Christian who lives in a very real sinful world that God gives His grace to you out of His fullness, that we receive out of His fullness. We have it right here in verse 16. It says, And of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. Right out of His fullness it comes. In Colossians 1.19, it says, For it pleased the Father concerning Jesus, that in Him all fullness should dwell. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and for this reason you are complete in Him. That is to say that because God ministers grace to you out of His fullness, He has everything that you need at every moment to live the Christian life, and the supply is never going to run out. A few years back, we did a pastor's conference on the island of Trinidad down by South America. And there is on the island of Trinidad a crater that is an extinct volcano which is completely filled with this tar pitch-like substance. The surface of the crater where the pitch is is so firm that people can walk across it and gases escape from below and slowly bubble here and there. For several decades, huge loads of asphalt have been dug from this tar-like lake and shipped to all parts of the world all parts of the world for paving roads. But no matter how large a hole is made in the pitch, it doesn't remain there for more than 72 hours. Because what happens is the pitch fills in from below. So you can come in and dig out a gigantic shipload of this stuff. And 72 hours later where there was a big hole, it's all filled back up and you can't even find where it was taken from. Shiploads of asphalt have been taken out of this crater, get this, for almost 75 years. And yet it never runs empty. Drillings reveal that this black gum-like substance is still found at a depth of 280 feet, and the supply coming from within the earth seems to be almost endless. 
Well, in a very small way, that pictures God's infinite grace toward us. It is superabundant, and it never diminishes. No matter how great our problems, no matter how great your problems, no matter how much grace you have used up already, He is ministering His grace to you out of His fullness through Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to receive it, bathe in it, enjoy it. So we all receive, we all receive out of His fullness. But there's more. We all keep on receiving. This is just a further statement to give us even more confidence. See, John is writing his gospel to help us. I think that sometimes we get the idea we come to the gospel of John as new believers. We're taken to the end of the gospel of John where he says these things are written that you might believe. We get the idea it's just one big large Christian track, which in fact it is in a very real sense. But there's more than that here. God has the ability to say many things when he's saying one thing. And here in the Gospel of John, which is one, there are many things. And John really wrote this Gospel to encourage the believers. He's wanting to help us. And that is why he tells us here that we all keep on receiving. Look at verse 16 again. And of His fullness we have all received grace for grace, or grace upon grace. You know what that means? That means this. Each blessing that you receive from God paves the way and makes way for the next blessing that He is aggressive to give you. So every blessing that you sense God is wanting to give you. And if you're teeter-tottering on the edge, wondering, should I receive His grace in this matter and receive His blessing? If you're wondering, know this. If you will, it will so enlarge your heart that you will be fit for an even greater blessing to follow. So many ways to explain this. Dr. F. W. Borman told of an old sailor by the name of Sam Duncannon, who upon retirement joined the staff of the mission in which he had been converted. Because many poor people lived in the surrounding neighborhood, Sam decided he would collect attractive pictures and distribute them to the homes nearby where a ray of any kind of beauty was desperately needed. Before giving them away, Sam would paste a motto or a scripture verse on the bottom related to the truth expressed in the picture. One evening during a service at the mission, they sang a hymn that caught Sam's attention, especially the words, Have you and the Lord believed there's still more to follow? Sam was deeply moved by those words. Ah, he said, now that is the perfect line for some picture. I've just got to find a picture to suit it. I'll put it at the bottom and give it to somebody to bless them. The next day he began to search for the right picture. It wasn't long until he found just what he was looking for, a picture, a beautiful color photo of Niagara Falls. After purchasing it, he put the words at the bottom, more to follow before the ma below the magnificent scene, for like the ceaseless cascading waterfall, the limitless love of God will ever flow. John Phillips summed it up this way. He said, we all keep receiving because God's grace is like a mighty Niagara thundering unendingly out of eternity and into our hearts. Oh my, I love that. The grace of God thundering out of eternity and into our hearts in a never-ending way. Now, folks, we're on shouting ground. If you can sit there and nod out while we're talking about this, and may God help your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. <laughs> grace. We receive more and more and more of it. What could be better for a sinner? You know who wrote the song Amazing Grace? Do you know who wrote it? John Newton. Lived a very sinful life. He was a slave trader. 
incredibly immoral man, but God got a hold of him, converted him in a radical way. For the rest of his life, he served him, and out of that experience, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. When he was on his deathbed, John Newton, converted slave trader who became a preacher and a Christian poet, lay there dying, and a young clergyman of his acquaintance came to see him and expressed deep regret that the prospect of losing so eminent a labor in the Lord's vineyard The venerable servant of God replied, True, I am going before you, but you'll soon come after me. And when you arrive in heaven, our friendship will no doubt cause you to inquire for me. He said, But I can tell you already where you'll most likely find me. He said, I'll be sitting at the feet of the thief on whom Jesus saved in his last dying moments on the cross. You see, although he had become a distinguished man of God by that time, He had received so much grace throughout his life that it had humbled him. And I want to tell you today, the grace received again and again and in a greater and greater way has a way of humbling you. So that some of the most blessed people of God become the most humble people of God. And in the end, when this man is about to die and go to heaven, he says, if you want to look for me, you find the thief who was saved on the cross and you'll find me. I'll be right by him. That's the category of heaven I'm going to be in. I know it. As Paul came to the end of his life, after all the revelation, after all the grace, the grace that was made sufficient for him in his weakness, he categorized himself in this way. Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Grace received and received will cause you to become more and more humble as you delight in your great and awesome God. So as John talks to us about the grace of God, he tells us there is a never-ending supply of grace in Christ. And then briefly here in verse 17, he adds to that that it's because of a never-ending covenant of grace in Christ. And in verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but having spent a couple of years in the book of Hebrews, I can read a verse like that. It makes lots of sense to me. That's the great thing about line upon line, year in and year out, building up the truth of God. You come to other scriptures and suddenly they just burst right open for you. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is simply a contrast between what Moses gave and what Jesus gives. The law had to come first, of course, to reveal man's sinful condition, to show him how utterly helpless he was in sin. That was all part of God's plan. Nothing wrong with the law. The law was good, holy, and just. It was part of God's plan of redemption to work with mankind and the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ followed along just at the right time. Why? Because it is the only ultimate final solution to man's sinful condition and his dilemma. And so the contrast of grace and law. Galatians 3.24 sums it up when it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And I am so thankful that I live in a day an age that is under the covenant of grace, aren't you? You know, sometimes we moan and groan and we read the Old Testament and we say, Oh, I wish I lived in Bible times. Bible times. I wish I lived in Bible times. Well, hey, wait a minute. Where do you want to live in Bible times? You better make sure it's not on the other side of the covenant of grace or you'll find yourself back under the law, which was not a very easy way to live. You want to hear some contrast between the law and grace? Let me give you seven of them. The law addresses men as members of the old creation. Grace makes men members of a new creation. The law manifested what was in man, sin. Grace manifests what is in God, love. 
law demanded righteousness from men, grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death, grace brings a dead man to life. Number five, law speaks of what men must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for men. Number six, law gives a knowledge of sin. Grace puts away sin. Isn't that great? Law gives a knowledge of sin. Grace puts away sin. Number seven, law brought God out to men, but grace brings men into God. And so the law came by Moses, but grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. What have we seen so far? The humanity of God and the grace of God. Let's go on now to verse 18, the last verse for our message here, and talk about the declaration of God that has come in Jesus Christ. And with this verse, John terminates his introduction and basically summarizes all of the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. This is a very interesting statement, and there's a number of rich truths here. One is that concerning Jesus Christ, he has shared from his own intimacy with God the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, what he has done effectively is revealed to men what they had never known about God. Really, he has revealed to men what they had never known about God. We see that here. If you look at the beginning of verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. So Jesus has come to reveal to men what they had never known about God. Now you might be thinking quickly and saying, Wait, 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 wait. Hold it. I know my Bible. Now, I'm not so sure I know John here. How can he say... No one has ever seen God at any time. I know my Old Testament. Now I know that in the Old Testament, the Bible says in Exodus thirty-three eleven, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. How could John then say no man has seen God at any time? I know that Abraham was cooling off in his tent one day, and as he's sitting there, three guys came walking up. The Bible's pretty clear that the one in the middle was God, the, one on, the two on the outside were angels. How could John say no one has seen God at any time? I know that Daniel saw these revelations that, where one of the angels seems to perhaps be a Christophany, a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. How could he say no man has seen God at any time? I know that Ezekiel saw this incredible vision that looked like an old man sitting in a big glorious chair, the Ancient of Days. How could he say no man has seen God at any time? What does John mean? How can he say this? Let me say this, that the old saints, the Old Testament saints declared God from limited manifestations. Limited manifestations. If you want to go all the way back and talk about Moses, with God face to face, that's how close he was to hear God. But believe me, he wasn't looking into the face of God. At one point, not literally, because at one point, he said to God, Lord, I've enjoyed this all so much so far. I've loved every minute of it. You're my greatest delight. Can you just show me your glory, God? And God basically says, if I do, it's going to kill you. So here's a plan, Moses. I'll pass by. I got a little hole in the rock over here. He made a hole in the rock. He says, now you just stand in there. I'll cover it up. And when I'm almost all the way gone by, then you come out and take a quick peek. 
But make sure your timing's right, or it's going to blow you to smithereens. No man can see God's glory and live. So Moses came out and just saw the very hinder parts of God's glory. So great was it that it made his face glow, and he came down the mountain with a glowing face. So what he saw was just a portion of a manifestation of God. When he was close to God at the burning bush or talking with God at the tabernacle, he could hear God's voice. He was close. He saw the Shekinah glory of God, but at best only a limited manifestation of God. The same with all of the other prophets that had these encounters with God. No man has seen God at any time in all the fullness of His glory. That is John's point. Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said it. He said, Now to the King Eternal... Immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. The reason John could say that no man has seen God in his fullness is because God is invisible to man. Really, he's invisible. And if you go on in the Bible, you find in John 4, 24, Jesus said it. He said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because you can't see him. He's invisible to us. He's a spirit. He lives in another dimension. Some of his glory leaks through into our dimension. Moses got a little bit of that. He wanted to manifest part of who he is to Ezekiel. So he has to condescend down to Ezekiel's life and his world. And so he sees this vision that appears to be like a man. The same kind of thing with Daniel, you see. But it's all little tiny manifestations. Not to the king immortal and invisible. Jesus said it, God is a spirit. So the Old Testament saints declared God from limited manifestations. What's the difference in Jesus? Well, we read here in John chapter 1 verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. What is that saying? It is saying this, Jesus Christ, in contrast to these prophets from the Old Testament who declared God out of a limited manifestation, Jesus Christ declared God from an unlimited eternal intimacy. And there is a vast major difference between the two. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. This phrase, who is in the bosom of the Father, is a pretty fascinating one. Because it speaks of this proximity to God the Father, this personal intimacy, this personal enjoyment of God the Father's love at a close proximity that would only be possible to another member of the Trinity. And now we're in over our heads, beyond our understanding, but that's the truth. This is a level of intimacy that could only be found in what is described in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 where it says concerning God who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. God alone who has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light. What John is saying to us is this, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has dwelt with Him in that unapproachable light. He has come out from that light to dwell in the body of a man. And out of that intimacy that He carried within that body throughout His life from the very beginning of His existence, He has declared God to us from an intimacy that He has carried on from eternity past with God and that He carries on even to this day. Out of His intimacy... He has shared God with us. What a fabulous thing. In John 14, 9, could you turn over there in your Bible? Jesus, our Lord himself, clearly explained that this is what was going on. He explained it to Philip. He said this was the process. 
John 14:9 Jesus said to him Have I been so with you so long and yet you have not known me Philip He who has seen me has seen the Father so how can you say show us the Father do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me Out of his intimacy with the Father he has declared God the Father So we read according to that in John 1:18 that he has declared him and you know that is why I can say as a child of God tonight Upon a life I did not live, upon a god I cannot see, upon a death I did not die, I place my whole eternity in Jesus Christ is the reason why. He has declared God to us. He has shared from his own intimacy with the Father. And going even a little further here, really the last thing we'll talk about, he has shared as much as a man could receive about God the Father. You see there is so much about God there's only so much we could take you understand being who we are as little human beings he has shared as much as man could receive about God the father verse 18 of John 1 says no one has seen God at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him in this sense he has fully manifested the mind and the character of God to us as far as we could receive it as much as we could take he has revealed to us have you ever wondered what god is like you ever thought about it you ever sat and said i wish i i knew god better i i wish i understood the mind of god i wish i understood how he looks at things how he feels about certain matters that perplex me and that trouble me and upset me i wonder what god is really like have you ever wondered thoughts like that Well look again at our text it says no one has seen God at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him you know what John is saying to us he's saying this you want to know what God is like I'll tell you God is exactly like Jesus Christ that is what God is like there's no mystery about this thing anymore you want to know what God is like go to Jesus Christ and study him he's exactly like Jesus Christ I want to draw your attention now having come this far with verse 18 reading from the New King James I want to read to you what the New International Version says if you have it The New International Version says no one has ever seen God but God the one and only who is at the father's side has made him known What a translation but God the one and only Just in case you think they're really stretching it John 1:18 in the New American Standard Bible says no man has seen God at any time the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him John is telling us that God has revealed God to us and that Jesus Christ is God so he wraps up his introduction the way he began telling us that Jesus Christ is God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God that's how he opened up the book that's how he opened his introduction that's how he closes his introduction Jesus Christ is exactly like God. He has declared him. And the word for declare is the word that we bring over to the English exegesis. It's a word the preachers use to exegete a text is to explain its meaning. The declaration is from that Greek word that we bring over and it's basically that Jesus had declared has declared exactly what God is like. So this is how it ends up. The righteousness of God is then seen as the righteousness in Jesus Christ. The purity of God is manifested in Jesus Christ. The compassion of God is the compassion manifested in Jesus Christ. The love of God is the love manifested in Jesus Christ. The hatred of God is the hatred seen in Jesus Christ. You say, "Oh wait, hatred? God hates? Could God of love? A God of love hate? I thought the Bible said God is love. God hates sin. He hates it with a passion. Jesus Christ 
hated sin all throughout his life perfectly. In Jeremiah 44.4, God says, However, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early, sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing I hate, this abominable thing I hate. It is sin. God hates sin. The anger of God is seen in Jesus Christ. You say, God gets angry? The Bible says God is love. Now you tell me he's hating something? Yes, sin. Now you tell me he gets angry? Yes, at sin. The Bible says he's angry with the wicked every day. Hold it, I thought God loves everybody. Now you're telling me he's angry with the wicked every day. Yes, he is angry at their sin every day because he hates sin. You say, well, was Jesus ever angry? Yes, at sin, at hypocrisy. Who are the people that he dealt the hardest with? The scribes and the Pharisees. Because they were so sinful and he made them angry. He treated them in an unparalleled way in Matthew chapter 23. Read it when you have time. In Mark 3, 1 through 6, it all comes together. And I want you to turn there and we'll stop the message after we read it together. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here we have a wonderful picture of the love and the compassion of God and Christ. And at the same time, the anger of God. Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, says he entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Why? Because they were so concerned about the man? No, these are hardened guys. No, because they wanted simply to accuse Jesus. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward, come out here from among the crowd. And then he said, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with what? Anger. He was angry. Their hypocrisy, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Because he healed somebody. Because he manifested the love of God. And you know, in the end, he let them destroy him, didn't he? On the cross. And in the act of their destruction, to get rid of him, to kill him, he manifested the greatest revelation of God's love that he ever could to the human race as he took their sin upon him and died for them and the sin of mankind. And so we read that no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. I'm going to close with these words. Listen very closely. Major Ian Thomas summed up everything I have said to you about Jesus Christ and his coming to us. He said this, he had to come as he came in order to be what he was. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did so we might have what he has. We have to have what he has in order to be what he was. Now, just to help those of you who didn't get it all, he went on to explain. He had to come as he came, born of a virgin, in order to be what he was, a perfect man inhabited by God. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did, die to redeem us. He had to do what he did so that we might have what he has, his life, and all that we lost in Adam. We have to have what he has in order to be what he was, which is a perfect man inhabited by God. 
And by the grace of God, we will live to see that day in eternity. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together in the Gospel of John. It has been a joy to come again and to spend this hour studying our Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you, Father, for your grace. How we thank you that your grace is for all of us. How we thank you that your grace comes out of your fullness. And how we thank you that we will go on receiving your grace. It thunders out of eternity and pours down into our hearts like a great supernatural Niagara. Cause us to ponder these great and wonderful truths. And we will give you all the glory as our souls are blessed. For we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.